The following discussions are a further look into Director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to Through the Wind Door with your friends Greg and Toby. It's been just a week for you, but it's been almost a month for Toby and I to sit back down and have fun, fulfilling conversations about this piece of media it's that means so much so to us. Long. <laughs> oh, I've needed it. Oh, this this window was just like getting creaky. It was not that it like, it wasn't used to like not being used. It, there's rust on this. Oh, we got to. <laughs> uh. And we were actually just gone through an entire hour of just catching back up in general and going on our own individual tangents about life, the universe and everything, our lives, current events, everything like that. So we are we're, thoroughly we're even, warmed up. We're not even kidding. Like there's, that was some, prime philosophy right there and you know <laughs> fundamental truths were learned life was appreciated feelings had journeys made journeys ended and journeys begun and all things in between and that actually brings us to the fact that we are now talking about part two of arlington the end of one not necessarily journey but like one part of the story and the beginning of the next Significant because this chapter that we are starting on today with chapter 13, part two, this is where... Episode seven. I don't even know what episodes mean at this point, considering it'd be like, oh yes, we had this episode, parts A, B, C, and D. That's just mm. how it ends up getting divided sometimes, because mm. we'll go on and on, and I'm trying to keep my editing workflow here down to a manageable level. Okay, so um, before I make this next joke, I want to reiterate that you've you have done a good job with the labeling and everything. I think it makes complete sense. But uh, let me just, for the purpose of the comedy, say that I want by the time that we're through Steamheart for our episode titles to look like Kingdom Hearts subtitles. <laughs> I mean, that would uh, exercise my creative brain to come up with what's the word uh, subtitles underneath the colon that to be exciting and also make no sense at all three five eight over two uh, steams yeah exactly so this is where the events of the first chapter finally catch up with the evolving narrative in the district of columbia that we have been discussing for many episodes now significantly there is also a distinct divergence in the types of storytelling and genre trappings that happen here. Chapter 13, 15, and 16 still mostly have the political thriller feel to them, with chapter 13 even having a speech from Grant, complete with background patriotic music 
uh, something the West Wing was famous for whenever for the, President Put a coin Corlett, in the jar? Yeah, oh, yes. Yes, put a coin in the jar. It was famous for in terms of having these speeches, not just by President Bartlett, but by other members of the cast as well, whenever they had a particular point to make about life, the universe, and everything once more. But then in the audio drama, Chapter 14, when it's the continuation of Annie's story, brings back some of the music types that were present in Secret Rooms. In point of fact, the piece One Wild West by Edward Blakely is specifically reused. It's not meant to be Annie's theme, per se. It's more meant to be the overall theme of that specific set of characters that were introduced mm. in Secret Rooms to begin with. It's the but, ensemble of location, person, and mm-hmm. like events, I guess, like that yeah. that all encompasses overall mm. setting. Yeah, as we'll get into later, the adventures of Annie and adventures outside the urban proper of DC have a different feel to them in comparison to the more statesmanly stories that have been in Arlington thus far. This reminds us that we are still in a world with a frontier, both in the traditional Wild West style, but Mm. also a frontier of the mystical and unknown, as we will get into once we start discussing manticores. Manticore, 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 manticore. So I'm starting to think that your plans for a Sound of New Century episode you've been mentioning here and there for a while is becoming more and more essential because I'm now realizing just how important music is to audio dramas for establishing tone, perhaps more so than in film and television. We ain't got mise-en-scene or at least nothing visual. The mise-en-scene, as in everything you see on the screen as a collective for audio dramas, is really affected by the music that frames the scenes. It goes from being a key herb or spice that you add to your dish in film and television to being the source in audio format, the thing that steers the whole production in an intended direction. And I don't mean to shortchange the rest of the pieces, the other components involved in the audio dramas, from performances to the editing of like key sound effects and things like that, but it does bear mentioning just how much music brings to audio dramas when it's employed. And yeah, also the juxtaposition from the very politically charged and specifically US politics, politically charged music of Grant's final address, where you practically can feel the flags flapping in the room (laughs) as he addresses his team and the members of staff at the end of chapter 13. The establishing sound of chapter 14 feels like a significant change of scene from the emphatically Washington thriller that we were just taking part in a moment ago. It's a remarkably effective way at conveying the range of battles that are being fought simultaneously at this point in the story by different parties in different settings to be found in America. And I think it is using that strength of America as a setting, as a country, is that there's so many environments linked, even if there's huge geographical differences between them. Mm -hmm. Thinking about 
all the different kinds of stories that have already been and the stories that we have yet to fully discuss here on Through the Window in terms of what New Century has done. Arlington is one of the few occasions that diverts out of its established setting so thoroughly, at the very least in terms of going to one place in one chapter and another place in another chapter. Hmm. In Steamheart to come, not really spoiling anything, but it, it goes from the urban to what would qualify as the suburban in antebellum South terms and everything like mm. that, not in modern terms, to mm. different kinds of frontiers out there. Mm. But there's a natural transition to it. Well, it's here, a road trip narrative. Yeah, it facilitates that change of setting, whereas here you are actually getting quite different genres mm. like aligned next to each other. I tried thinking if there were any other books or media out there that had running narratives that changed both setting and genre as a part of the narrative. At first, I could only think of Clear and Present Danger, a Tom Clancy story that followed different sense of protagonists in both D.C. and South America. Even then, that was all part of one cohesive genre. And then it occurred to me that the best example that could come to mind was Cloud Atlas most specifically the movie version, since in the book, the various stories are nested, but do not explicitly cross over. In the movie, all the various stories and their genres run parallel to each other. It's supremely ambitious, and maybe even too much for the average viewer to follow. But Alex's examples in genre meshing flow a lot more smoothly, because through the magic of the multiverse, he manages to fit together the worlds not unlike different Lego sets. Or indeed, the Lego movie itself. Obviously, that ongoing experience of New Century, including a lot of genre shifting, it's going to happen a lot, but it doesn't mm-hmm. happen happen in the same story. Right. And it's not to discount, say, secret rooms, Mm-hmm. Because we've already talked a little bit about how That's that true. story was the first time to include some genre mixing there in terms of how so much of it is Abigail and James exploring their new frontier, so to speak, mm. and how so much of it doesn't actually include supernatural elements at all. Yeah. And, like... then, and then there's a rush of reminding us, hey, the Wendigo do exist, even if we Mm. haven't seen them up to this point. Mm. But now, including the gothic trappings of the House of Respect and Mm. the magic introduced by Krieger and Greta. This is actually a great example of why the hero's journey isn't the only way to tell a story. Or at least, one that doesn't have to be beholden to the exact structure every time. Secret Rooms shows us how to subvert expectations, by having the protagonists cross one threshold, and then cross another, the deeper they got beyond the borders of their previously circumscribed home. You're right. Secret Rooms does actually sort of shift quite a bit, because you have, and I'm going to take Definitive Edition as the base, you have coming-of-age, growing-up drama, you have 
a going out and exploring and familiarizing yourself with a new frontier that makes it feel very western mm-hmm. and then you have a haunted house narrative essentially mm-hmm. and then werewolf attack like it's sort of just a lot of things so genre mixing within individual stories and lest we forget that tiger's eye blindsides us by like going <laughs> Okay, we're doing Jungle Book, and now we're doing Amistad and yeah, exactly, and, and Roots and all and, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, that does happen. But the difference between Arlington and those books is that those books have the connective thread of like the main characters. Like you may see a lot of different genres and settings in Secret Rooms, but it's always through. James and Abigail Mm -hmm. like they are the things that as you see their journey they are navigating these different spaces and environments and challenges and like ideas and in Tiger's Eye even though it throws a lot of new stuff at you you're invested because that's where Frau and Miguel are Mm -hmm. and in Arlington it's different people these are different stories going on because they're told within the book, become like one unified story. Mm-hmm. It's not like Frank is now been sent off. Because you could rewrite the book in this way, that like Frank is sent off from Washington to mm-hmm. investigate this or something like that. That doesn't happen. It's specifically this other thread. Hairs of it overlap with one another. But Annie is not involved with this washington stuff at all at this point and yet like it's all under the name arlington it's all in this book so it is something new and unique that we haven't experienced a new century before even as genre mixing is happening within individual books not just between them you're right that this could be done differently in terms of having the characters that we've established and spent the most time with could be the ones that are leading the ongoing narrative. Mm. But there is connective tissue there Mm. that has been already established through all of the trials and tribulations that we've been doing with Frank, that Annie and, and Frank are intrinsically connected and are a part of each other's lives. But having them be in two separate places doing two different jobs allows for the fact that, you know, travel is going to be a lot slower in mm. this day and age. And it means that there doesn't have to be a huge time jump in between events that are going on at the same time by having Annie off doing one thing over here and having Frank off doing another thing with the Arlingtons and everything like that. So mm. the way those two things work together in conjunction it it actually pieces together very well. Mm. It just means that depending on how we see the flow of time progressing, mm. that it can take a while before individual moments actually feed together. Mm. Annie is an important component to this story, but she is a very small role in terms of she doesn't show up all that often in Arlington. She mm. is there to help guide key moments that are going to be important for us, the audience, because mm. 
the stuff with the manticore and everything that we're going to see mm-hmm. going forward, that is going to feed into all of the events in Washington, not spoiling anything, but mm. it would hardly be surprising at this point if the Manticore was going to be an effect on Washington events, mm-hmm. given its natural mobility of being a flyer. Yeah, And that is something that I'm definitely going to get into. Once we <laughs> hone in on the Manticore discussion in particular, the connections are myriad and important to each other but the natural divide between Annie and Frank and the Arlingtons helps facilitate this idea. It keeps this genre over here in a different part of the country Mm. and this genre over here in a different part of the country and that helps frame the divide of those two stories but allows them to inhabit the same narrative space. Mm. I think it's also indicative uh, in terms of the release schedule of like or timeline of release with the new century books. I think it's indicative of Alex growing increasingly assured with the writing of new century to Mm. kind of widen the flexibility somewhat in terms of there's a confidence that we can take sort of multiple perspectives here because there's a plan and and a surety that this is fitting together. And it's not that Secret Rooms, even the original version of it, or Tiger's Eye suffers from, you know, not having like sort of things that go out of it. And arguably Tiger's Eye does actually take your sort of perspective out from Mm. Frau and Miguel to other people as the book goes on. But you're starting to see New Century widen its possibilities in terms of how it will structure its stories, what kind of flexibility of narrators you'll get, and Mm -hmm. the way and the range of tones that can be found within individual volumes of this ongoing series. And It's ambitious. And unfortunately, that ambition continues on into Steamheart, which I feel like almost killed certain people in terms of actually putting that out right. on a regular no, basis. That one, so. that one got like super ambitious. But I think that while Alex has often said that he like doubts he will ever write a book that will be as long as Steamheart again, I also think that like that doesn't mean that he stopped getting creative and experimental with the like way the structures of his books like no we haven't even (laughs) begun to talk about stone spring maidens yes yes go to like uh, the news of the century for like this year just see everything that we haven't even (laughs) scratched back in time plus space holy Mm. shit Mm -hmm. (laughs) no phase two has definitely been about upping his game and he has brought that in Mm. spades i think and some of that experimental stuff means that there are things that may or may not work as well with each other as they have in previous your mileage may vary we've had our own Mm. conversations about this i think that by and large we think that he's hit more homers than he's missed so You know, Um, it all works very well, but all of this new stuff is mm -hmm. grounded in, as you say, the progress that we've seen him make 
in mm. these early outings. Exactly. But let's... We keep ranging farther afield the more we talk about this. Speaking bring... of getting more ambitious and what we'll cover, I think we're like going, oh, yes, we have this thing, but what about this and that and yes, all exactly. the other things in between? Mm -hmm. Let's begin by bringing it back to Chapter 13, just so mm -hmm. people are aware, because I, di I didn't say it at the beginning of the episode. Our conversation for however many parts this is going to expand to will be chapters 13 through 16. So let's bring it back to the first chapter and see mm -hmm. if this proceeds the way everything has been in the past, where the very first chapter we're going to discuss balloons out into being like <laughs> an hour of content by itself. Ah, we'll be. Uh, it's okay. We've uh, done... Uh lengthy bit but that was general so here we'll be nice and focused and concise yes you can take that out if that becomes an ironic statement later <laughs> uh, chapter 13 could be uh, in some ways taken right from the world of the west wing itself and in the jaw yeah. <laughs> if you replace discussion of the manticore with some more real world mystery and threat it all slots into place mm. there's discussion and debate particularly in regards to elections and candidates mm. goals assignments all of mm. it capped off with the presidential speech that we referred to earlier complete with the music it even gets to show us all the different employees we have already met doing their jobs and doing them well it's aspirational mm. and it kind of just like all fits together. This is the system humming along the way it should, even though we're talking about something which is completely upending what little order we have established at this point. Fully. Uh, I, I think it's this feeling of surety after everything has been shaken that you're getting this idea of this is okay. We have good men and women working on this. Let's get this done. Mm -hmm. This chapter, in fact, highlights one of the most compelling aspects of the television series that it borrows from. It makes us want to believe in a government that fights for its people, a government that pulls together in a crisis and makes the right decisions. Sure, there is a political aspect to everything they are doing, but it isn't done from a selfish place. And that's the ideal we want to believe in, rather than the government we got for four years. That was nothing but selfish, and craven, and petty, and destructive. It is a very appropriate setup for an opening scene for the second act. The scene takes advantage of the real need a government like this would have following a development like this in order to facilitate a sequence where the characters of our story go over everything that happened in Act 1, with particular focus on the opening prologue, which happened a while ago for the audience of Arlington, narratively speaking. Like, this is recent stuff for them, but it was many chapters ago, and <laughs> if you're like someone who's sort of going through this book slower or it was time of release. That was like a fair bit ago. You kind of need that immediacy of it, like reestablished, which I think this scene does because. Yeah. Well, a, you, when you think about how it was put out originally first to like 
Patreon where mm. he was putting it out weekly. And the way Alex went on to put out Arlington Remastered for general consumption, he always puts these things out weekly. That mm. means by the time we get to chapter 13, that would be three months yeah. of passage time. Mm. So it's like, yeah, the one advantage to having the entirety of the audiobook at your fingertips means that you can go from one to the next to the next, and you can keep listening to it mm. for as long as you have time and space to devote to mm. it. But when it's being released like this, where each chapter is like its own episode, the way we would take in a show like, say, mm. Loki or something like that, yeah. then that means that it gets spaced out over a long enough period. So now we actually have to say, oh, oh, right. This thing that happened with Annie three yeah. months ago from our perspective. Right. But even even if you are like, you know, you've got a weekend cleared and you like just decide I'm going to go through this entire thing in one sitting. And I've had weekends like those. Those are nice. I mean, they do nightmares to your emotions. Like you you go up, <laughs> down, left, right. It's you like upside down by the end of it. New century responsibly, kids. Um, <laughs> uh, but the even if you do it in like one continuous setting, no matter how you slice it, a lot's happened. Like there's been a lot of material between prologue and this chapter. No matter how you do it, you have to reestablish immediacy. So like we're taking stock, both us as readers and the characters, we're all taking stock and making a plan and the input from the various characters present is engaging because we're doing all of this after familiarizing ourselves with them in the first act because think about it like you could conceivably have a version of this story that would start here mm. with the discussions of this inciting incident and what the correct response should be coming immediately after an explosive opener in an effort to assure readers and listeners that this story is going places man which let's be clear it is but you care a lot more because we've taken the time to lay the groundwork by setting the scene and getting to know the key players we know that this inciting incident is not the cause of things getting fucked up or even the only thing to be fucked up right now thomas was actually wrapping up the previous act by saying that pointing out that if the wind happens to blow in a particular way, then they're all screwed. That makes this scene carry that much more weight and place importance on what comes next. But it's also an aspect of Alex's storytelling, mm. because all of his stories tend to wear multiple hats in terms of what they're trying to talk about. He's never been shy about tackling many different things, themes, stories, all at once. But they're also all very character-driven pieces. Mm. So therefore, beginning the story with showing us a whole bunch of the characters that are going to be important and what their individual deal is, mm. that's showcasing his preference to how stories should be told. The point is not the plot, or the point is not just the plot. It's how the characters live and interact in this world that he's crafted for them. 
so mm, to speak. Precisely. And you because you can imagine like meeting room scenes, you can probably remember several dozen scenes playing in your head right now from movies where like an event happens and there's like a table and there's a bunch of people just voicing it, like just saying things that is essentially just the sort of plot or like the details it's the script like you're si- like and it doesn't read as a room full of characters it is just the script and it's like mm-hmm. why don't we do this because we can't do that that can like you can still make that engaging and there are still like great films that will have scenes like that where you don't know everyone present but you're still getting like important facts come across but there's a difference between that and knowing each character mm. as they come up with new contributions to the ongoing discussion. Yeah. And the difference is between hearing the words and hearing them voiced. Like mm. there is a voice behind the words. They're not just words that need to be relayed to the audience so that they can get the context and the, oh my God, I'm blanking on the word when you have like, uh, when you're communicating something in order to like uh, communicate information to the exposition. audience, exposition, exposition, Jesus, like <laughs> why? Uh, 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 something's wrong with me. <laughs> but no, I like the idea. Of what you were saying a moment ago is that it's mm. not just people saying the words; it's why they say the words. Exactly. It's about like... understanding what their perspective is beforehand. So that when they say something now, it's not just about communicating information to the audience. It's about why this person would give this piece of advice or voice this particular concern. That's what all this setup gives greater weight to. Precisely. Uh, God, I miss this so much. <sighs> when we're when we're when we're spinning, we're just we're just really on top of it, and this is that's what makes this collaboration great. But yeah, there there isn't a whole lot more to be said about this particular chapter except for the way all of this comes across in terms of talented people and bright minds becoming more part of a cohesive whole that the text itself, that the experience itself doesn't provide when you're hearing these people talk in rooms. Talking mm-hmm. in rooms is something that Alex... <laughs> brings up occasionally as being not necessarily a bad way of storytelling. I, I remember he talked about Bridge of Spies recently as being very much a movie about people talking in rooms uh, mm. and everything like that. But yes, I prefer the weight of knowing the people saying these things as mm. opposed to just being this person voicing this thing and not knowing, not having the greater context. Yeah, it's not like a screenplay where the conversation is the important thing and, like, the two characters involved are man with hat and (laughs) woman with glasses, and it's just sort of like, okay, we have the vague impression of who these people are. There's texture. We have textured this whole exchange through the first act, which means that we're seeing the follow-through in animation terms this is like the anticipation of getting bugs bunny to do the sort of charging up the swing and then there's the natural follow-through that like even if you didn't see anything more you could imagine what the rest of it Mm. would be that's what good characterization is is that 
you will never have full uh, like certainty what will happen next but if you have done it well each line from a character will make sense that they said that it'll just be like from what i know about you what you said makes sense even if it's not like it's not a matter of if you agree with them it's a matter of like i understand why you said that that's character writing that there it's about just building the portraits and then letting it unfold. So you're talking about building the portrait and letting it unfold. I think this is the point at which we need to follow through on our promise that we have been building up to throughout various... Yes. And now for our next segment, Musings on Manticores with Toby Jungius. You did a lot of research here, which I was not originally expecting. I didn't expect <laughs> to have a long, drawn-out conversation of the Manticore specifically and why this was picked to inhabit the world of Arlington. But mm. honestly, I should have guessed this because mm. you're the one that's sitting in a room with a poster with... Thomas and Sarah sta staring at you, and the Manticore looming threateningly behind them. So yeah, I like um, this. I have this thing hanging over me every time I sit down to write notes about New Century. Of course, I was going to like give it its due. Otherwise, I think that it would come to life one night and just devour me, as it is wont to do. I am going to give you the floor here and give right. you a chance to unlimber all of the facts that you dug up about the Manticore, and then I will give you my response, which you have not had a chance to see yet, mm. but I did, in fact, write something in regards mm. to all of these details that you came up with. So, sure please, tell us about Manticores, Toby. <laughs> <clears throat> I'd like to take a moment to go over Manticores and their presence in this story. At this present stage in the book, you could argue that it's kind of incidental what dangerous mythical creature this is. Just from a practicality standpoint of the writing, it could be any big monster that was previously unknown. A Sindo was the term, I believe. Yeah, I, which... I will interrupt briefly here. Yes. You spelled it wrong in your notes. Son of a bitch! But the thing is, is that you... If it was the audio drama that you were listening back to, mm. then you're basically just going off of what it sounded like when mm. Jeremy introduced the term. What you would know if you had actually read the book is that Sindo... Oh, you're just exposing me out here, Greg. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm one of those fake audio fans. No, no, no. It's <laughs> the audio drama, Alex would argue, is the superior way to intake New Century. But the significance here, and again, there, there is stuff that is not always as apparent, and that mm. therefore the book is better able of to filling provide. The gaps. Oh, mm. Yeah, of, of filling the gaps. But the term Sindo that Jeremy uses here is actually meant to be an acronym. I it's thought that was the case. C-I-N-D-O. Right, yeah. And what that's meant to be an abbreviation for is Creature, Creature of, of in Indeterminate, Indeterminate 
origin. Origin. Right. So C, end, and then O, basically. Gotcha. Yeah. Which I, okay. I believe Jeremy explains in the text I remember itself. the conversation, yeah, exactly. which is why like it came to me now. All right, well, now that I've, uh, like, my whole research has fallen apart in the first paragraph, I shall resume my diatribe. So, it could conceivably be any, like, monster that shows up out of the blue to lay waste to an armed contingent of cartographers and government agents and devour the vice president before mysteriously fleeing. And because it could be any sort of creature the question naturally emerges why a manticore and not say like a dragon or something or any other creature mm. that could like to fly that like we're familiar with in folklore that you just from a word would be able to go oh i know what that is in order to answer this i guess like i decided to just do a little bit of digging mm-hmm. and from what i've read it appears that the manticore's origin it has roots in persia with it being reported and written about by a collection of ancient Greek authors and both the uh, Persian etymology at the time and the Greek translation of it, which would be Androphagus, mean man-eater. They sort of, Mm. that is the translation of like Mm. manticore and the etymology of it. So on a base level, when the manticore we see in Arlington shows up and eats the vice president virtually whole in a short series of bites that tracks with the like fundamental root of what this creature is in like sort of our understanding it is a man-eater so like not just man-eater but it will eat people whole Mm. and leave no trace behind that definitely sounds like well, when I looked into some of the sources that you were uh, basing this off of yourself, the idea of like clothes, possessions, all mm. gone. This is mm. how they would explain the utter disappearance of someone that, you know, had gone beyond civilization, so mm. to speak. And there isn't even a body left or bones or anything to mark what happened to them. That's a really good point, because I think that that adds to the impact of, like, it's not just that the like vice president has died. The vice president is gone. Mm. He has fundamentally left an absence. Mm. So the fact that he has been ah. like, eaten entirely whole, and now the question is, this is an absence and we need to find a way of like finding someone for it. Literally a power vacuum. Exactly. There is a vacuum that is a result of this. It's not just that he got sniped by a political adversary or something like that. Mm -hmm. He was eaten whole and it's like he was there and now he's not shit. So this is why I love (laughs) these conversations because I have notes. That wasn't in my notes. Mm -hmm. This wasn't the plan. I love it. (laughs) I love when the plan changes. I don't think that works as well. I don't think that uh, Hannibal would say that. I love it when a plan changes. <laughs> no, he loves that's, it when a plan comes together. No, you know who that is. That's bizarre, Hannibal. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The Z team. <laughs> you just have like the inversions of each of the main characters. Mm. Oh, I want. I want fan art of that. Go on, tell me more about details of the Manticore. Hmm, it's uh, my new book coming out. From the looks of an excerpt I found from one Greek author, Claudius Aelianus. Mm, I don't Aelianus. Know. Go on. Uh, Aelianus. Uh, yes, he's an alien. 
Yeah, uh, Claudius Alien, uh, it would appear that the detail of a manticore being able to shoot nastily large spikes or quills or spines, whichever you prefer, from its tail, is a characteristic that has more or less always been associated with the manticore. So that another reason the manticore works here in Arlington is that the cartographers are unprepared for supernatural creatures in general, besides the known Wendigos, but they're also fundamentally unprepared for a sender with the capacity to fire projectiles. Mm, mm. The Manticore's quills also feel, like, strangely more unnerving to me than the idea of, like, a dragon's fire breath, just to kind of compare it if, like, this had been a dragon, like, instead. Yeah. Fire coming from a beast is certainly intimidating, but it's a starkly supernatural occurrence, and one that's very, like, big and, like, loud. By comparison, the way that the quills are sort of written and narrated in this, they feel a lot more like something you could conceivably imagine a wild creature being able to employ. They seem much more fast, sudden, targeted, and, like, you know, blink and you miss it, than wild fire breath which makes each quill embedded in the sort of environments, anyone that's missed or anyone that hits its target, it feels a lot more sinister to me than just a wide-scale blanketing of fire. Mm. Last thing I'll mention is some possible symbology associated with the manticore. Now, this only comes from my limited time exploring this topic, so I have relied on tertiary sources and am therefore open to being corrected if these details turn out to be false. Resident Manticore experts in our Discord, please come forward. I <laughs> generally want to learn more about this. In ancient Greek culture, the Manticore represented the unknown lands of Asia, the area it was said to inhabit. This runs close to what you could describe as Orientalism, but outside of this original context, I wouldn't consider it fair to broadly label modern invocations of the creature collectively as an example of Orientalism. It sort of feels largely removed from that original like context where it was like, uh, this the sort of creature from like far off lands, like, nah, it's seeped beyond that to the point mm -hmm. that if you want to find out where it originated from, you do have to do a wiki dive, essentially. So in the instance of Arlington, I think that what this culminates as is a sense of unknowable classification. Like the fact that it introduces the term Sindo adds to that, a creature of indeterminate origin. Mm -hmm. And this creature is unlike anything on record as embodied by its hodgepodge physiology with it being a lion, a scorpion, a body of a wolf, legs of a horse, eyes of a priest, mind of a wasp, hair of a chimp, postman shin, clothes of a crab, and a buffalo, etc. It just mm -hmm. like, they're identifiable characteristics, but the whole is completely unknown. And in later times, the manticore was apparently recognized by many Europeans as a symbol of the devil or the ruthless rule of tyrants. This may have originated in the practice of using manticles as royal decorations. So my question that I ask is, do you think there might be something to the idea of a politically destabilizing incident 
being carried out by a creature with this kind of association as the government is trying to restore the country but is contending with all kinds of opposition. As it turns out, I do have an answer, of a sort, to his question. But before we get there, this final bit from Toby. Other associations apparently include the manticore being an embodiment of strength and ill omens as the manticore can be a symbol of evil tidings and calamities and bring bad luck and misfortune to those who see it. Ah, I, I love it whenever we include some new aspect to our podcast that can hearken to similar forms of media that uh, people will recognize. So well, well done there for invoking that with what you just did. So to start tackling these things in the order in which you brought them up. Mm -hmm. Back when I was first listening to Arlington, I never honestly gave that much consideration to the mystery monster in question being a manticore. I didn't even know that its origins were Persian. To be perfectly honest, I didn't even know where the story of the Amanticore originally came from, that it was Greek or Persian or anything like that. My first experience of the Amanticore was the last unicorn, because that was one of the monsters that the witch was supposedly keeping caged so that, quote-unquote, uncultured peasants would see these mythical monsters that they had heard of, told in stories and everything like that, uh, when in fact they were just like other animals with illusions laid on top of them and everything like that. The story of the Manticore doesn't actually come out in The Last Unicorn, but it does pay a little bit of lip service to or introduce various kinds of supernatural creatures beyond the unicorn, such as the harpy and everything like that. I do know that The Last Unicorn was an important work for Alex, and I would encourage anyone that has not already to both see The Last Unicorn as a phenomenon. Toby would, of course, be in favor of that, given his love of various kinds of animation. But there is also an incredibly good school of movies that goes along with that and is actually one that I specifically contributed to to pay for. That's how mm. important The Last Unicorn is to me. The Last Unicorn, unfortunately... Wonderful is... song and music oh, as yes. well. Oh, mm. yes. Yes, I love the music. But I'm just saying, this was how I was first introduced to the Manticore, and I came to learn more about it because it was a D&D &D staple, which, of course, mm. borrows monsters and magic and myth from all kinds of different sources. Uh, Fear so... the dreaded owlbear. <laughs> yes. Oh, the dreaded dog snake. <laughs> Just the, the the concept of so many monsters out there are combinations of creatures, and that's what makes them monstrous. Cue the uh, Avatar of the Last Airbender of like, sure you mean a also bear. Yeah. <laughs> Just bear. Yeah, exactly. But this so, place is weird. I know that Alex is going to have multiple meanings behind anything that he puts out there. That mm -hmm. meant that I knew that it wasn't just going to be it's like, oh, yes, I remember the Manticore from The Last Unicorn. So I went on to dig a little bit deeper. Obviously, I'm speaking for myself here, so I can't necessarily know everything that was going on in Alex's head. And I'm sure as he listens to this episode, he is definitely going to chime up in Discord and talk more about what his thoughts were. 
But in my own head, based on everything that you just said a moment ago, the Manticore actually works really well from a practicality standpoint. Mm. Work backwards from the discussion of the creature in the chapter itself. We've established, or at the very least, the story establishes that the monster may have a writer or a master. Mm. We therefore need a monster that is big enough to carry a writer, but potentially animalistic enough that it wouldn't have motivations like a human might. Dragons, sphinxes, the coatl, perhaps. There are a bunch of potential monsters out there that have human-level intelligence mm. and therefore could have made decisions like this, such as to eat a vice president on their own. Mm. They could but, be independent entities. Exactly so. So therefore, establishing that this creature is scary and monstrous, but isn't necessarily a decision-making creature, Mm. That is important for the story, as we will get into, not during this conversation, but during the later conversation. Mm -hmm. On top of that, the Manticore is ideally suited for the desires of this master that is not revealed uh, mm -hmm. during the chapters we are discussing right now. It's small enough that it can sneak up on prey, and in fact is an ambush predator like the lion that the Manticore is based on. Mm. It has superior mobility, thanks to its wings, mm -hmm. so it can get in and out very easily. And obviously, the whole flight capacity means that it can get distance quickly and just, like, disappear beyond the range of guns, particularly guns of that era. Mm. It and has an it, armor. Yes, exactly. It has mm. the armor on top of that, which makes it more difficult to kill than an average lion would be. And it has that ranged ability that you mm. mentioned a moment ago, which mm. makes it deadly even from a distance. In point mm. of fact, the way Chapter 1 plays out is that it uses those quills in order to take down the defenders of the vice president mm. for swooping in and making the kill, so to speak. Mm. This is something that, like, there's really no safe range for mm. this thing, like... Oh, I don't. You don't want to be far away. It's got quills. Oh shit! You're now within chomping distance. The fuck are you gonna do about that? Exactly. It almost makes it too good an assassination weapon. Should you be able to control a manticore? Mm. Um, and from a storytelling perspective, it has the benefit of being a monster that someone might have heard of, mm. but uncommon enough that it's not overused in fiction. Mm. There are tons of stories focusing on dragons on unicorns. Greek mythology is a source that a lot of people are probably familiar with from school and everything like that. So you would have heard about things like the Chimera or mm. the Pegasus or uh, giant serpents or the Hydra or stuff mm. like that. The Manticore may have its place in Greek mythology, but I can't think of a specific myth yeah, no stories. Yeah, it's it's not like the featured like beast of uh, a Hercules task or something. A like Hercules that. task wasn't killed by Theseus. It wasn't killed by Hercules. It wasn't killed by Bellerophon. Any of that. It's maybe in a story somewhere, but mm. it isn't. It isn't the headlining monster, so to speak. 
So that yeah. makes it unique enough for a new story to tell her to be like, ah, yes, this will be the monster of choice here. And as far as the symbolism, well, as much as we've talked about the problematic aspects of Thomas's actions, mm -hmm. I don't know that Alex would want to suggest that Thomas is a tyrant that needs to be overthrown. No. Whether the Manticore's master is attempting to use said symbolism, let's just say that we're going to have to shelve that conversation for a while. Because, mm. yes, exactly. <laughs> this is yes. definitely something that's going to be brought up once we start covering chapters mm. 17 through 19. And You haven't heard oh. the last of Manticore discussion. <laughs> yes, exactly. We won't be silenced. But that's my mind at work right there. That is mm. very much from a, a, a thoughts of, like, what works on a storytelling level, and also what works on a this is a considerable threat level. A dragon, first of all, by the time Arlington was written, he didn't even have the princess thieves in mind. And dragons are only referred to in that story. They don't actually show mm -hmm. up. That's why I'm fine with saying that and saying, yeah. th this isn't a spoiler. There aren't dragons in the princess thieves. But dragons are a part of the overarching mythology, or at least a version of them are. So um, yes, they it's will associated with that like yeah. corner of new century. Exactly. So they will eventually come up as a, as a story. Mm. But the other part of the reason why why not a dragon is because mm. well, dragons are very deadly. They're not very stealthy. No. If it was a dragon that showed up people probably would have noticed. Mm. You're not going to have a dragon perching on a rooftop and nobody sees it. A, a lion, on the other hand, is an ambush predator. And, mm. like, it naturally hides in grass or other mm. fauna and stuff like that. You mm. wouldn't necessarily expect it on a rooftop. That's one of the unique mm. capacities that would have come from it having wings and therefore being like, oh, yep, able to hop up here and get a yeah. bird's eye view. Great. Now I'm able to snipe with, with quills. <laughs> Play of the game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so with a lot of other monsters, you mm. have to sacrifice one of the advantages that the Manticore has. Mm. So it, that, that all works very well from a, yes, you can absolutely see why this is the ideal choice for the for, author and yeah. for forces in the story to employ for this mm. specific task. That's exactly it. And like, I, I, I mentioned dragons a lot. There's, there's really no reason why it should be a dragon or why like that should be the example that I compare it to. It's not like, you know, on the monster chart, it's like one degree off from manticles or anything like that. It's just that like, that's, I think I often think of like dragons are like the go-to fantastical or mythological creature. So it's sort of like, okay, like let's like there's a specificity at work here. Let's like unpack that. Let's ask like why the specificity matters. Mm -hmm. And I I love it. I, I always like it when you have something that like just in from its very presence draws analysis and it's like what is this thing and that question isn't just oh it's a like kind of a lion but also like a 
giant bat, but also a scorpion and also all this other stuff. What does it being here elicit from us? Like, what do we feel because it's here? And in a nutshell, it's pants to be dark and terror. It's like... (laughs) Oh, fuck man like the wendigos were bad enough like mm-hmm. with for this society and now you got something like this fuck this concludes our segment on musings on manticores with toby Ingius. <laughs> uh i love it <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that a great new segment folks sure can't wait to hear what comes around the next time we hear from toby on manticores but in one week We'll hear about other things, like our simple, uncomplicated love for a sweary soldier, ghost stories, and much, much more. To close us out, a song I've never heard before, by a band I've never heard before. Sure, I could come up with something personal and meaningful, but after that last show-stopping number, there's only one way this episode could end. Ninja Sex Party! Hit it!